Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. We are broadcasting from the Sebago Trout Unlimited Castaway for Conservation event today. It is Thursday, May 6th, and I'm here with Nate White of Northwoods Fly Company and Greg Labonte of Maine Fly Guys tonight. We're hoping to interview some folks here at the show today who are doing some cool things to help promote the Maine fly fishing industry, and we are going to be attempting to answer questions that listeners have sent us over the past week. So I'm here with Matt Streeter, who's the vice president of the Sebago TU chapter, and uh, they're the ones putting on this great event tonight, and all proceeds from this are going to go back to the Sebago TU chapter. Um, what are some things, Matt, that you guys are going to be doing with those proceeds? Well, uh, all, those, all those proceeds are going to go co- toward conservation efforts here, generally in southern Maine, all Sebago TU projects. So it's a little different from the national when you contribute to the national organization that goes nationwide, which is also very important. But uh, this fundraising is for our local activities and uh, projects. And the three big ones that we're promoting at this event, we've got a lot of things going year-round. We've got three dam removal efforts coming up uh, in our membership area. The biggest one and the most immediate one is, or the most important one and the most immediate one, I would say, is the uh, Crooked River project. It's... uh, in the town of Naples, there's a, an old dam. It's about 100 years old or more. It's um, half broken down, so there's there's just a chunk in the center taken out. And um, fish can get up through there, uh, but they can't get through there consistently at all water levels. And the fish of concern there are the uh, landlocked salmon, native landlocked salmon that live in Sebago Lake. Yeah. So do they need to go? They need to go spawn up past the dam. The salmon they need do. To go spawn up in the Crooked River. So ninety percent of the native landlocked salmon from Sebago Lake will spawn in the Crooked River watershed, and this is the first impediment that they encounter on their way up. Gotcha. Yeah, and the, and I saw a picture on the, um, on you guys' Instagram page. Uh, you can see if you go on there and go to Sebago Tu and you check out their Instagram page, you can see the dam, and uh, it's it's funny looking because there's no dam in the middle, but. The problem with the salmon is the water gets so low and there's a bunch of kind of like rock in front of it that they just can't kind of get over. Yeah, exactly. And people say, well, can't salmon leap over that? But they really aren't designed to leap like these long horizontal distances. All those pictures that you see with salmon leaping, they're kind of leaping up a fall. Sure. They're following a jet of water, right? But what this produces at low flows is a little trickle, maybe an inch deep across these flat granite blocks and they just won't even it won't even occur to them to go up there really because for all they know it could be a sandbar on the other side right there's not enough water to draw them through there right if that were opened up the whole thing were opened up from bank to bank there would be hundreds of pathways for the salmon to get through there to their next destination and they'd follow one pathway in low water and a different pathway in high water and every variation in between gives them opportunities to get through there Whereas with a little section in the middle and the granite block in the way, there are conditions that are available maybe 20 or 30% of the time sure. off the top of my head that they can get through there. Otherwise, they're either drastically slowed down and they're sitting in that shallow pool below that dam 
getting picked off by predators, mm-hmm. or they just turn around and go back out to the lake and don't spawn that year. So we've had some we've had some pretty low like water falls recently. We fall time we've had drought. You know, definitely last year was really bad. So, so you say those salmon they if they can't get up past that, there's no spawning grounds in between there and the lake, and they just they just go back to the lake and don't really get to do their thing. Or? Pretty much. I mean, some of them may spawn in that in that intermediate section between the lake and yep. there, but eighty um, percent of the I think it's eighty percent of the salmon that um, that spawn in the crooked spawn above that Eads Falls Dam. Gotcha. So maybe twenty percent can find places to spawn before that. So what will they do? Will they, will they remove that kind of, that six foot section you're talking about there? Like that, gran- it's like granite or whatever on the bottom yeah. of the river basically, right? Yeah, they're big granite blocks that were put there way back when. Yep. Um, the ideal situation really would be to remove the dam from bank to bank. And that, like I said before, that gives the salmon the opportunity to find a pathway in different flow levels. Gotcha. Now, the town has to agree to that. Some people like the, like the dam there for historic purposes. It's a very beautiful spot. Um, what we would like to do is take it out from bank to bank and leave the dam on the banks as a remnant of the dam and as a historic marker and, and to recognize the historic value of the site. Sure. But the town may say, no, all we'll let you do is take out that very middle section, in which case we'd take out those granite blocks all the way down to the bed of the stream. Yep. And they'd have a wider range of uh, options to get through. Now, does the state get involved in this at all, or is it just you guys working with the town? No, this is absolutely this. We're working with the main department of inland fisheries and wildlife with yep. the local biologist. Great, that's awesome. Biologist, that's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and on that, we're there is a meeting, so if people are listening from the town of Naples, particularly um, on May 10th. I believe it's about 6 p.m. It's the select board meeting. And that is where this decision will be made. And the townspeople will be hashing it out, you know, pros and cons. So I can go in there and speak, but people you don't in live Naples don't care much what I say. Sure. You know, and it really matters what their neighbors say. And really important for Naples residents to get out to that select board meeting and speak out in favor of preferably removal of the entire dam. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people don't know how hard it is to remove dams. It's not an easy thing because you're fighting so many different things between, you know, power sources, even though that one doesn't generate electricity, but, right. you know, towns, people like the historical look, people want the water up above them, right? Like, there's always these, always these issues. So um, what are some other dams you guys are focusing on? Well, another dam, uh, let's see, the um, kind of in, in order of importance, I suppose each one of these, when I think about it, I want to say this is the most important one. This is a really, really important one for a couple of different reasons, but it's the Mousam River dams. Yep. So three dams, or the first three dams that returning uh, sea run fish like alewives and striped bass, well, striped bass don't spawn up there, but they do follow the alewives and eat them. Yep. Um, they get shad up there too? Shad. It's a really nice little shad fishery already. Yep. If we get rid of these three dams, those shad would have much more room to spawn. We'd have a much bigger run there. Cool. Um, at any rate... It would also improve habitat in the main stem of the Mouson River for brook trout. Yep. And eventually, once there are nine more dams up that river um, taken down, the, the brook trout will have access all the way up to the little uh, upper level streams, the, the feeder streams, sure. all the way back out to the, um, to the estuary. That's crazy. The brook trout will absolutely do that. They'll fill every single little niche if they have the opportunity. Yep. And it's really important for a strong, healthy 
diverse brook trout population to be able to have that access throughout the whole watershed. For sure, for so sure. that one is, um, it's, a, it's a FERC regulated dam. It does, those three dams do generate electricity, but the owner has decided they don't generate enough to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So they're going to FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that regulates the hydro dams, and asking them for permission to decommission the project. Gotcha. Okay. FERC has to grant that permission. FERC can put conditions on, on that uh, permission, right? Yeah. And they can they could, and it's a very wide latitude that the individual who's making the decision for FERC has, they could tell them you have to remove the dams, this is a requirement of decommissioning, or they could just say, do what you want, you can walk away and not do anything. And in that case, the dam would just sit there, right? In that case, the dam it's not doing anything. There. It's not even generating electricity, which was probably what going back to the town, right? Right. At, the, at, at one point. Residents, yeah. Sure. So it's not generating electricity. It's not used for firefighting. It's not used for anything. Yep. Um, they're old concrete dams. They don't have the beauty of the Eads Falls dams. People do respect the the historic nature of them, and there is a way to honor that by leaving segments of them on the bank and yep. things like that. But Really, they're causing so much harm to that river system. Sure. You know, to the brook trout, to all the migratory fishes, to the health of the river itself. They're yeah, there's a lot of ducks. I mean, I fish that river quite a bit in the wintertime. There's a lot of ducks there. There's a lot of birds that yeah. come through there, too. So not just not just the fish stuff, even, right? And yeah, absolutely. And the whole ecosystem will recover in a way that, that you know, with the nutrients that the sea run fish bring in, yep. um, it, it causes cascades down the down the food way. Man, oh, I'd love to see that happen. Love to see that happen very soon, even. And um, and then, is there one more? Was it the, the, more, the Royal? One more big dam project that we're working on right now. It's the Royal River. Yep. Now, the, the um, town council in Yarmouth, the, the two dams, the first two dams on the Royal River are owned by the town of Yarmouth. And the town council has been a number of groups, Main Rivers, Royal River Conservation Trust, Sebago TU, and others have been working with the town for years trying to persuade the town council to remove these dams. And now we have a town council that's very amenable to that. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. No, it's fine. Um, and um, the town council is engaged with the Army Corps of Engineers to study the watershed, to study all of the engineering challenges that might be posed by this, the hydrology, the hydraulics, the sediment transport, you know, it was a big concern for a while that the sediment would wind up in the harbor, silting in the, the, um, the harbor marinas. Sure. Uh, but even at this point, the harbor marinas have come around and said, listen, if, if, you can, if you can take these dams out, and as long as you can do the engineering right, such that they're not harming our, our marinas and silting up our marinas, then we're all for it. It's good for the river and good for the, um, the whole watershed. For sure. And what is there, two dams there? Two dams. Yes, that's right. That's right. And um, they don't generate any electricity currently, do they? They don't generate any electricity. Nothing. No, they're, they're just they there. Were from way, way back. Man, there's way so back. many of those in the state here. It's not even funny. Oh, it really is. I mean, yeah. I, I, don't even, I don't even want to venture to guess how many there are. But, but at that one, we do have a call to action on that one as well. And that is, especially if you're in the watershed, especially if you're in the town of Yarmouth, there's a local group called the Royal River Alliance. Mm -hmm. RoyalRiverAlliance.org. Go to that site. Sign up, make a contribution, become a member, become involved, uh, help be in touch with your, your uh, town counselor and all that stuff there. 
They're very active local. Is that just for Yarmouth residents, or can folks do that who are not part of Yarmouth? Anybody can do it. Cool. So we're, as Sebago to you, is a, is a NGO member of that organization. Gotcha. Now, on, going back to the, to the um, Mousen River, yep. there is a real, there's a really urgent call to action on that as well. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, we need people in, in the next week to send emails to Governor Mills. Ask Governor Mills to instruct and provide support to her agencies, specifically Department of Environmental Protection, Department of Marine Resources, and Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, to provide support to them to take a very strong stance in the FERC filing, to file comments in favor of dam removal. Like specifically the Mousem or just any anywhere on the Mousem for sure. Okay. This proceeding um, to do that to um, because those the decision makers at FERC, the person who's making the decision at FERC, will be very heavily influenced mm-hmm. by NOAA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and these three agencies will have the biggest impact of anybody. So if you send a letter, an email to Governor Mills. Ask her to instruct her uh, commissioners to stand up for removal there. And then if you can CC me, BCC me on that email or send me a copy, mm-hmm. I'm at mstreeter212 at gmail.com. Okay. I will take that list, and in about another week or two, I'm going to come back and ask you to send a similar letter directly to FERC. Fantastic. Because the FERC decision, well, the filings are due April 21st. April, uh, May 21st? May 21st. Sure, yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, coming up, and geez, that's not far That's not far from here. Right. So, so we're, we're trying to pack a lot in there. Yep. But it's really important. It, it will help set a precedent for how these small dams are handled. It's not the Penobscot. It's not the Kennebec. But it's a really beautiful river, and it matters a lot to people here in Southern Maine. Absolutely it does. And, I mean, I, that's a big fishery for me in the wintertime. I love to go over there, and it's close to my home in Saco, so... I'll be writing an email, and I know Greg will too. So you get you get two more votes there at least. So Great, yeah, you. and uh, hopefully people listening. I mean, guys, just an email. You know, it's takes yeah. takes a couple of minutes to write. And um, could people reach out to you too? And you have kind of a canned uh, yeah. message for people to, to talk about. To, yeah, they can reach out to me, and I can talk to them or email with them. Um, I try not to send out a canned message because as soon as it looks like a canned message on the other end, yeah, that makes sense. It really gets discounted. Yeah. But, the main thing is, you know, why do you care about the mouse? Do you fish there? Do you bird there? Do you canoe there? Sure. Did you grow up there? You know, make it personal. And, and you know, it's, it's the elected officials really need to know what people care about. For sure. And they don't know that automatically. They, this is how they know it. Yep. That's great. Um, and as far as... You know, folks looking to join Sebago to you too. I mean, what's the best way to go do that? Uh, go straight to sebago to you dot org. Yep. Um, there will be links there for membership, or you could just go to tu dot org, the national organization. It's, you would be becoming a member of the national organization. Yes, but then you can you can uh, select your own chapters, correct? Well, typically your uh, your zip code will tell them where to place you. Gotcha. If you don't like, if you want to be in a different chapter, then your zip code indicates then you can contact them and they'll switch you over. Okay. That sounds great. And um, any upcoming events that you got coming out? I know you got the uh, you got the Exploring the Brzezumskit at Dundee Park on May 22nd. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the next uh, biggest upcoming event. And 
Uh, that is Lou Zambello, who many people know as a, as a guide. Um, and a writer. And a writer. Yep. He's written a lot of great fishing guide books. Sure. Um, we'll be leading a group of uh, TU volunteers who are experienced fishermen and women to show people around the Presumpscot River. Presumpscot River is a great trout river. I mean, it's, you know, it's all, it's all stocked. Yep. But for our area, it's such a beautiful river, such classic freestone, uh, riffle run, you know, uh, pool yeah. habitat. Yep. And it has a number of really great tributaries, uh, the Pleasant River, I, I love fishing the little Pleasant River. Oh, Pleasant River is great. Um, and there, there's a lot of great places to fish on there. So we want to introduce people to some fishing spots there. Sure. Is it going to be like an all-day event where they kind of go down through the whole water system? Because I know they've had some big changes like down in Westbrook too with the yeah. with the falls getting knocked knocked down there, the dam there got knocked down. So. Well, what I think they're going to do, we're going to meet at Dundee Park. Yep. Um, not down near the dam, not down near Dundee Dam, but at the other end. Yep. And um, I think it starts at 9 o'clock in the morning. There's a morning session from about 9 to 11, if I recall, or 9 to noon. Okay. And people will gather, and then they'll break up into smaller groups. Cool. They'll gather, there'll be some initial presentations, and then they'll break up into smaller groups. And the groups will go to one or two sites. Gotcha. So it won't be going site to site to site to site. Yep. Um, and then there's another, an afternoon session. So if you want to do both sessions, that's great. If you just want to attend a morning session, you can do that. You just want to attend the afternoon session. Oh, it's fantastic. I've I've fished and floated a lot of that river and I I mean I grew up in Westbrook, so I'm right there and oh, yeah. it's uh it's a special place and I mean there is stock fish. There is some holdovers I, I find from time to time, yeah. which is cool. Um and it's just a great spot because it's close to Portland. You know, yeah. it's in fact Lou was people. telling me a story the other day. He went down there and caught some, caught a holdover fish that was uh, very large brown. That's awesome. I mean, they're there. There's there's not ideal water for them all the time, especially in the summer and the winter. But I mean, right. they hold over in spots. They get a spring or something, right? They can they can hang on. So, well, thank you for your time, Matt. We really appreciate it. All right, thank you. And uh, yeah, guys, go check out Sebago TU. They got some great stuff coming up, and uh, events like this are, are pretty awesome. So, yeah. and any of those any of those things I commented about the action items I'm asking people to do, you can find more information on the website. Great, sounds good, Matt. Thanks again. All right, thank appreciate you. it. Hey, uh, we're going to jump right into some of you guys' questions. Um, and uh, what we'll kind of do is me and Greg will kind of talk through. And we also have Nate White here with us, which I mentioned before. And he's uh, going to give his two cents on some questions too, right? See yeah. how it goes. Yeah. All right. Uh, question number one, what's the best way to tell if the smelt run is happening, if it's on? You want to start with that one, Greg? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the first one. Go for it. I guess we can go back and forth. We'll go back and forth. That's what we'll do. All right. Uh, if you look down and you see dead smelts floating by you, that's a good sign that <laughs> it's going on. Yeah. What are you laughing about? Well, that's a really good sign, yeah. It's very <laughs> obvious. Well, it's very obvious. I don't know why you're laughing about Well, I'll take, my, I'll take my turn after. Well, you started with the easy answer. That's why I was laughing. <laughs> if you see them floating by you, they're probably <laughs> running, so... Look, he asked a question, and I'm telling you. All right. That's a great way to tell You're supposed to leave me with the easy answers. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You're the science guy, so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a fun episode. If you, I guess, from the start 
of May, depending on where you are in the state, I suppose, to basically mid to the end of May, even. There might be some small, some hanging around. That's pretty much when the smelts run. So, you know, I guess it's tough to tell if there are a bunch of smelts out front of you, right? Because they're tough to see unless they're floating by you. For sure. So I would just say, in May, throw smell patterns. If they work, you're good. Yeah. You know, uh, there's no, there's no, like... I mean, there's water temperature, there's certain temperatures, but every stream is a little different, you know? So, some smelts might be running at this temperature, and then you go to the next lake over, and they run at this temperature. So, temperature's tough. I guess you could really get good data on a river over many years. So, if you go to a certain river in May, you could take temperature each year and be like, okay, at, you know, 50 degrees, the smelt pattern worked really well here yeah so next may i'm going to use it is there a universal temperature that usually works pretty well for them or is it just kind of all over the place i mean i'm sure there is i i'm not aware of it though okay yeah and and don't they they spawn at night though right like that's when they actually go into the into the brooks and the trips move at night as well gotcha um i mean on a rare instance you will see them moving during the day like i've seen them moving during the day but uh for the most part they move at night and you know most migratory fish are moving at night yeah. Because especially small ones that can get eaten, like stripers might be a little different because they're not worried about, you know, an osprey coming down and taking sure. it. But smaller fish and stuff typically move at night. Let me ask this, this is probably a dumb question, but where are they like if they're in a brook at night, right? Mm-hmm. They're in there spawning, like do they leave the brook, come back? Like how does that smelt? Where yeah. No, they're they're pretty much in there. And like some some of the runs they make are pretty far. Yeah. You know, some of them are pretty far away. So they're pretty much in there. And your goal is just to pick them off on their journey, basically spawning. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, pick off fish that are targeting yeah, yeah, them. Yeah. So, and the fish come out of the lakes to chase them. That most places, right? That's yeah. really the big, the yeah, big I, deal. I would say, you know, you should, um, you should not be afraid to throw a smell pattern that's quite large. Mm. Like, I, I'm okay with throwing a six-inch smell pattern. Yeah. Are you okay with that? I've seen some that big. Sure. I've seen brook trout, big brook trout, cough up like mega smelt out of their mouth and you're like wow i don't have a fly that big yep. you know so yep. i'd say don't be afraid to go big you know? all right and nate you tie the near enough smelt which is the your very popular pattern you got any input here <laughs> anything uh, we missed no no i don't really have anything to add to that i mean you guys were greg's greg's explanation is spot on you know Sorry, I was just giving thumbs up to some random guy. <laughs> I don't know who that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny doing a podcast in front of a bunch of windows with it's, people just randomly walking I by. I know, I know. It's very interesting, but it's warm here. The sun's out, so. kind of looked like you had something for that guy. I don't, I don't know. He, he looked like you wanted to come by and ask us a question. But Sorry, guys. This is going to be an interesting episode. Um, let's move on to the next question. I hope that was enough uh, smelt information for you all. Um, what fly fishing gear? So we're gonna change. We're gonna change here, and it actually works really good because we're at Thompson's Point tonight. What gear or outfit do you personally use when you're fishing on the salt? So not from a boat, and you're waiting. Nate, you want to start with that? Yeah. Uh, so I really just started taking the salt more this last year, um, and I have a older model TFO BVK nine weight. Um, with a intermediate sink and a really heavy, heavy sink tip line. Um, and those are both set up on uh, an Orvis reel. Nice. What do you, 
what do you wear for like uh like your new waiters like do you bring like a pack with you or you know what do you got like, going there yeah i i've always fished with with more of a waste pack style pack um and discovered this last year in the salt that i'd probably be better off with like a either a sling pack or even a chest rig for the salt but um i do fish in waders um just because i'm really not that comfortable in the salt really and uh <laughs> and in the water itself so <laughs> yeah. yeah so I, i'm usually in waders but uh some of the guys i fish with are just you know in regular flats boots or you know whatever cool so. yeah um i mean i just started kind of striper fishing more last year i guess greg's kind of the the pro on this one so we'll let him we'll let him clean this question up but i use uh i have a stripping basket all around my waist uh really good to have um i feel i feel like it's kind of a necessity if you're if you're waiting um i also use a sling pack i found that to be really beneficial last year because i didn't know what to do with my stuff before i just kind of jammed my waders and because you're not wearing a vest out there like it's you know you get into some higher water or you get high tides across or something it's kind of kind of sketchy so i feel like the sling pack was pretty good get enough stuff there but what's uh and that's not my rod. My rod and reel stuff's very similar to what what Nate was talking about. Intermediate line, and I don't even I don't even know what rod I use. I don't I don't guide in the salt, so I don't have to be real official there. But <laughs> why don't you go ahead and throw in uh, Mr. Striper guy over here? I'm definitely not Mr. Striper guy, but um, you're up there. I, I I do okay out there. Yeah, you um, you go a lot. Yeah, I do. I do go a lot. I used to live in Portland, so I have you know literally five minutes. I'm on like some great striper water. So, you know, pretty much what you guys said, I use, I have three different line setups though that I usually bring. I, I usually, if, well, I mean, if I'm going to anywhere that's sandy, I have a full sink with me for crabs. And then I have an intermediate for bait fish, clousers, the typical stuff. And then I have a floating line just in case, you know, because if you run into a blitz, it's like, you're killing yourself if you you want to be on top to you know top water hit or whatever. So so what do you carry three reels with you or like yeah, a, a two spools? Yeah, I usually carry two spools with me. Yeah, or, or two or two reels, you know whatever. Um, do you wear a, do you wear a vest or what are you wearing? I wear a chest pack, you know, little yeah. chest, little high chest pack and yep. uh, a wading belt. I don't know if you guys said that, but that's definitely yeah. something. Yeah, that's really I would recommend. So I wear a wading belt. What I do is I have a really long fly box and I just tuck it in my waders. Yep. The belt keeps it from sliding down, um, and then I, in, you know, I put my leaders in line and nippers and all that crap in, in my chest pack. So yep. Um, but yeah, but, you know, if you're looking to get out there, I would just do what you guys said. Yeah, I feel like it's so awkward because you go on like freshwater. You have like this. Most people are in a vest or some sort of pack, and they get all this shit with them basically. Yeah. And you don't really need it. So when you go out to places like the salt or you're on like a small stream, I feel like you just kind of change it up and minimize your stuff. It feels like you're breathing for the first time when yeah you're out there you, you know what i mean like you got nothing on <laughs> i know you're like, I, I did something wrong you know yeah. you're just casting you feel so free it's, it's great it really yeah is. i don't feel like i need to bring the eight fly boxes out to the ocean with me so um all right next question uh question number three this is an interesting one maybe nate nate will do pretty good with this one i think um my my answer to this is going to be very obvious and kind of a wise ass answer but um what is the best way to identify larvae and insects on the river? It seems like a very broad question, but at the end of the day, Do you want it? Go ahead. You I mean, 
Well, I would say flip over some rocks and see what's down there and then try to match it up to some flies you got in your box. Uh, if the more time you spend on water, though, you should see the same consistent bugs all the time, I would say. Right? Like, there, there's a non-wise-ass answer, I guess. Sure, sure. Can, can you repeat the question for me? Yeah. What's the best way to identify larvae and insects on the river? So, like, I, I take that question a little bit differently, I suppose. I think they're asking for, like, an ID. Like, this is a caddis. Gotcha. This is a stonefly. Yeah. How do you do that? that that's what I think from the question. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Is yeah, no, I, I mean, I remember back in the day, like, having a fly box full of flies, and I'm like, I have no idea what this thing imitates. I don't even know what it's called, and... I would suggest there are a few books that are must-have, and they're like stream side of the Northeast or something. Yeah. And, you know, there's actually, I can't remember it right now. But the Thomas Ames book. Is that the one with the picture of the bug and the yeah. picture of the fly? Yeah. You, yeah. You know yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That one is, is you got to get that. It's like the New England. Yes, New England. New England. Something, I can't yeah. remember the name of it. But, yeah, that, that book. Um, and carry it with you. Yeah. I carry a book with me when I am fly fishing. and uh, I actually did used to carry that with me. That's how I did identify a lot of stuff. It's funny because I know what stuff is now, but I never thought about how did I get there. Right. And there's like, you know, 20 different hydropsyche larvae in Maine. You know, there's so many different, you know, so like, and uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't carry a bug book anymore. I carry a bird book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is just gonna be this is gonna be a long evening. <laughs> Nate, please come in here. What kind of bird was that that just ate that fly out there, Greg? One, Mister Birder. I, I need my bird book. Yeah. No, hundred <laughs> percent. No, grab grab a copy of a really good book. Um, I actually have one that sits benchside that I kind of flip back to every once in a while. That's uh, Hatches of the Northeast, um, and it's pretty in depth about not only the insects that we get around the area, but also shows, you know, different variations of flies that can be tied to imitate them. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. That's great. All right, what cool. Do I don't know, it looks like we just had some fans dressed up. I, we'll, we'll come back to them in a little bit here. <laughs> this, is, this is a strange setup for us, but we're just, if, if anybody is wondering what it looks like who's not, who hasn't, isn't coming to the event tonight, well, <laughs> there's a huge pavilion. And there's a few rod people, and they're like 100 yards away from us. And we're tucked into this uh, container that has glass. Container. It's, yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be like a VIP container when they have concerts here. So we're just kind of hanging out here. The sun's right here. Uh, we, get the, we get the ocean right here. It's really nice, but it's just kind of funny because all these people are all over there, and the three of us are just chilling in this, this is, um, spot. way better than your basement. I agree with that, yeah. <laughs> well... There's no windows in my basement, and you can breathe here. No, so there's a lot of you know, a lot of charisma down in the basement, though. Oh, always, yeah, yeah, yeah. always. Right. This was next. This was next. Yeah, number four. Uh, how do trout and salmon in lakes find moving water to spawn in? That's sci- all, Greg. That's a science question, but to me, isn't it where they're born? They go back to. Okay. Or is that just some species of fish? Are you? Are, are they referring to, like, brook trout in a lake? I would think they're talking about brook trout and landlocked salmon, yes. Um, like, in, you know, freshwater system, no saltwater connection at all. Yeah. Right? Is yeah. that what they're, is that yeah. they're doing? Um, so, basically, those are called ad fluvial fish. Um, they are fish that move from uh, stagnant water, like a lake system, to moving water. And... 
what draws them. Uh, one, fish are, they're a little smarter than I think people give them credit for, just, just a touch, like not a whole lot smarter, but just a touch. And basically, um, they do have sort of a mental map of the lake. You know, lakes, you know, if you live in a lake, you can only swim around it so many times. It's true. And, you know, the older fish get, the more they sort of know their spots. And so... Well, some of it temperature-driven, too, though? Like, is that how they find stuff? I mean, yeah, for springs in the summer, yeah, that's temperature. A lot of it's done with their lateral line, so they'll be able to feel an increase in current, Mm. you know? And they'll be like, oh, river must be over here, right? Because they feel that increase in current. With really big lakes like Moosehead, that's when you sort of, it's almost like segmented. Like there are certain brook trout that never go to the north end of uh, Moosehead. Yeah. They're kind of stuck in the south. But smaller, you know, like in in Rangeley, all those fish in Rangeley that are moving around, those lakes aren't that big, you know. And some lakes, they really only have one or two outlets, you know, or one or two inlets. Like they don't have many um, major systems coming in. So it's pretty easy for the fish to detect using their lateral line, they can really detect uh, current and sort of a difference in pressure, you know, from the water moving over them. So yep. um, that's really, you know, he's just talking, or they are just talking about ad fluvial fish, so the fish that move from stream to lake. Those are, you know, fly fishing favorites. Those, those are the ones that we okay. we like and we chase. So that, it, that's, that's primarily how it's a little bit of uh, lateral line detection, and then they do have sort of a memory kind of, kind of, a, of where to go, when to go. So is it... Is it just uh, salmon, like Atlantic salmon, Pacific salmon, that they go back to where they were born? Like they have that oh, no, instinct? No, no. Or is there other many fish? More. Oh, many more. Many but more. those are ocean, those are sea run fish, though, that are doing that. Land not ray, river herring. Yep. Uh, sturgeon. But not a freshwater fish yeah. trait, basically. Well, brook trout. That's true. They always go back to where they were, they, were, they spawned from. Brown trout, too, in like Europe. Brown yeah. trout will go back to the same system. South America, brown trout will go back to the same systems. Yep. Um, really anything when you think about it evolutionarily it kind of makes sense because you were born in that system and you were successful so you want to have your babies grow up in that same system yep and that's kind of there's actually a lot there's a ton of literature out there about fish coming back to the same system they really don't have a good way for the sea especially like atlantic salmon scent is a big one some some organisms have a little bit of metal in their brain like a little metal um in their brain and it helps them with sort of orientate using the magnetic sort of flow of the earth interesting yeah sea turtles that would be they have a little you know they're not sure if it works like that but they have an excess of metal in their brain you know it's like that there's really no other option for it up there Um, but yeah so yeah there's there's a bunch of ways for you're talking about anadromous or catadromous species those ones going to and from the ocean those are the cool ones the you know ad fluvial ones are not as cool they just kind of swim around and they're like oh river's right there i'll remember that you know yeah interesting well i'm glad we have a science guy here because me and nate would not have answered that the same way that's for sure (laughs) um next question is for nate because i don't i don't really have any experience here greg probably has some but what are uh what are some of the best flies to use on the allagash river system that's you, Nate. Come on in. Uh, yeah. So it depends on where you are on the river system itself. So Allagash Lake, you know, in the springtime after ice is out, you can pretty much cast control 
any of the darker style streamer flies that are out there and have pretty good luck. And there's actually uh, a streamer fly called the Allagash Al that that absolutely slays up there. Hence the name for it, you know. Um, what season? This time of the year, spring, you know, if you can get in there right now, the ice has gone out of it. As long as the roads are good and you can get in there, you can you can still get all those brook trout that are up near the surface. Um, in another two, three, four weeks, they'll start dropping dropping back down um, in water level, so it gets harder to get at them. But it's one of the, you know, Allagash Lake is one of those places that you can actually go and cast streamer flies to fish in a lake system and easily catch fish if you're there at the right time. Um, moving down the system, you know, I, I rely on all of the generic insect stuff that I, you know, copy and fish down this way. You know, there's all kinds of caddis larvae in the system. Mm. There are mayflies in the system, you know, more probably caddis predominant up there, but you can't go wrong with, you know, any of the wolf patterns, um, particularly in the North country, like a, a white wolf, um, is a real good searching pattern for up there. Um, it's going to fish late in the evening too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can see it. Yep, late late in the evening, and it's it's real easy to see those. And you know, uh, moving downstream, once you get below Big Allagash Falls, you can put away your trout stuff and switch over to musky and catch musky from there all the way down to the St. John. So, nice. you know, fish fish five and four and five weight and six weight sometimes. You know, all through that system, and and then drop below the falls and get into your musky gear. Nice. Nate, I'm going to leave you on here for this next question, too. Um, I think we talked about this kind of in our last episode. So our episode 10 was on fly tying, but uh, somebody's asked, what's the, what's the best way to get into fly tying? I think we kind of went over that in that episode, if I remember, but you want to give a brief summary on your thoughts, <laughs> your thoughts for that? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, if the question is, how is the easiest way for you to get started in fly tying, um, buy yourself a good, a good comprehensive kit, you know, something that's got the book in it and, and get going, you know, having the book, I, I said this in the, the previous podcast, having the book is a great reference to be able to look back while you're in the process versus using like YouTube. Um, and then, you know, there's always the reach out to the other people in the industry and say, Hey, I'm working on this. You know, is there any chance that you might be able to help me out with some, you know, tips or tricks to do this? Um, and I know I give fly tying lessons, and I'm sure Greg would give fly tying lessons to the right person as well. So, yeah, he does. A, he does a class, I think. It, you do yeah. a class, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, kind of at you and yeah. him, but yeah. you know, some well, of the public really. I also teach. I'm probably the least proficient of the three of us in terms of fly tying. But with that being said, I do teach a beginner's class at Eldridge Brothers that I'll do a shameless plug for in January, usually every year. So. Do you guys do any quill uh, bodied? No, it was none of those. <laughs> no, no, it was none of those. Um, pretty basic patterns. Well, I, know. I do like to work up to a patch rubber leg though for the fourth week. Well, I think that's it's not bad. yeah, it's well, pretty. Why, why it's pretty no, good. Uh, quill bodied clink well, uh, I don't believe that's a beginner's pattern. First of all, size fourteen. Size fourteen, yeah, <laughs> doesn't work. Doesn't work. It's impossible. So, as we as we tried to prove last episode, but I was proven wrong. Still, have not seen any payment. Hey, well, I at least I'll, I'll I'll pick you up something here. Uh, I uh, I at least admitted that I was the least proficient of the three of us. So, so you're welcome. Um, next question, probably a good one for Nate and you. I don't know. I could throw in some stuff here too. But what are your uh, what are your go to 
pond techniques for early season trout here in Maine. That question actually comes from Tuck O'Brien, who is pretty much running this whole event here. So he's looking for some some now information, it seems like. So, it's sort of frowned upon, but I've been doing it for a long time, and uh, our good buddy Rosa, Brian Rosa, has been killing it with his style, and basically, I get a leader that's like, I don't know, 12, 15 feet, like a little longer, um, I usually just tie on like an extra 5 feet of 5x or something like that, and uh, I'll put a balanced leech on the end, and then I'll tie off... 18 inches, 12 inches of tippet on the back of my balance leech, and I'll put a chironomid, which is just like a little midge kind of type bug. Um, reds, silver, black, you know, they usually have the little white puffy thing on the head. Um, and you can just let it sit there. It's kind of bobber duncan, you know, and it's kind of boring, but it's pretty effective, and you can catch a lot. Of, if you can find where they're at, like within the, you know, 10, 15 feet, if you can find where they're sitting, then uh, you can really hammer a lot of fish that way. It is boring, but um, that's definitely one way. Yep. And then the other way is, you know, just stripping streamers, Yeah. you know, you can that's always try pretty much what I do. Bit, yeah, stripping streamers or woolly butter or something, but yep. the, uh, you know, Pyramid Lake guys, they do, they just sit there all day with a bobber out there yep. with a little chironomid on the end and they just kind of wait for a fish to come by so it's not exactly fly fishing I would say it, you know it's not really fly fishing you know it's literally the same as throwing a bobber and a worm you just have a fly on the end and not a worm yeah you're not really working the line too much you're just leaving, you're it, just there. leaving it there yeah yeah. Yep. Like, yeah so it's good to do on windy days when the waves kind of move the bobber up and down kind of imitates that natural movement of a chironomid so th that's what i do you know um again i don't even really consider fly fishing but so yeah i do it anyways but it's successful yeah, it works yeah, it works it works so you got nate so yeah i was just gonna ask greg greg do you ever on windy days fish and drift and do like a slow retrieve with that same setup yeah yeah i, I will like twitch it every now you know what i mean like yeah. i'll let it sit for whatever do like a 20 30 count in your head twitch it you know strip in a foot or two you know let it sit wait 20 to 30 strip it in wait 20 to 30 strip it in there are guys that i know though that just like leave it out there yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah i can't I, I, yeah i can't i can't do that yeah and that's so that's always the way that i've done more still water stuff is is wait for a day that's got a gentle breeze to it so whatever boat you're in you can you can put side to the wind and it just kind of pushes you along and you're making casts on the downwind side and and doing slow retrieves in there and changing things up and you can cover almost like grid sections of the lake or body of water you're in that way and if you keep track of the depth and location of where you're at you can usually get back to it easy enough with your boat and drift over it again and do the same thing so Nice. Yeah, that's, yeah, good. All right, here's a quick here's a quick answer question. Um, does this sound better? What is your favorite fish to target in August when you kind of lay off the trout or the, or the cold water fish? <laughs> I mean, they listen to the podcast. Sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What What was your favorite though? There's a few you could go after. Like, what's what's like your? Do you want to guess? I'll let you guess. I mean, mine is to go after smallmouth. I well, think that's that's best. Because you're you know. 
Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say you're in the you're in the flats. You're fishing stripers. No, guy. No? What, no. guy? Yeah. Grow up. Well, you're not doing musky in August. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you said you do musky in July. July and August I mean, are two I different months. I usually do do them in July, but of course I'm Okay. Tired. You just said doo-doo, first of all. And second of all, <laughs> you know, I'm... Uh, I wasn't wrong. I mean, July and August are not the same month. This specifically asks about August, so. I would say muscle lunch. Okay. Nate? Yeah, I'm with Greg on that. You know, small mouth are great, but, you know, there's nothing, nothing beats that big, toothy critter. So, yeah. Some musky? Yeah. All right. This next question is from Joel Susie. Uh, hey, Joel. And uh, he had a funny question here. And I thought it was somebody else when I asked this question earlier. So this question is, uh, right hand or left hand retrieve when you cast right-handed, who are the weirdos? <laughs> and we were kind of talking about this question earlier because I am not one of those weirdos. Me neither. Neither is Greg. Nate, you want to jump in here? Hi, I'm the weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> so, wh- so why? That's the question. Yeah, so uh, for me, it was basically I grew up fishing with my dad's equipment and my dad is left-handed. Mm-hmm. So he always he always wound his reels with his right hand. So I'm right-handed, uh, and it's just the way that I grew up fishing, and I've stuck with it. And you know, I actually feel very comfortable even king salmon and steelhead being able to hold fish with my left hand. You know, fighting them with a rod and reeling with my right. And I feel I'm almost faster line take-up speed with my right hand because it's my predominant hand than yeah. I would be if I was left-handed. So. Interesting. Then I've heard of other guys, you know, saltwater guys that say that you are faster with your predominant hand. You know, if you're right-handed, you're better off to reel right-handed if you need to take up line in a hurry. So that's why I do it. Nice. Well, it's not so weird, I guess, (laughs) at the end of the day. Have you tried it? Yes, I have. Oh, I've used a right-hand retrieve before. It feels weird. Oh, it feels like, you know, you feel like the first time you're ever picking up a fly rod. Yeah, well, it's like trying to write with your non-dominant hand. It's just awkward. But... All right, good question. Got some, got some, uh, you, got a good answer there, Joel. Joel. Have, you, have you ever talked to Joel before? I have. Joel and I have had a couple of phone conversations. He has some of the best expressions I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. I mean, like hardcore Maine down east expressions. You know, he does and, live. He does live in Harpswell, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. In that area, it's, yeah. You gotta ask him for some sayings. Just ask him for a couple of sayings, and he'll just rattle a few off that are sure. And you're just like. Where do you get these? Where do you get these from? It's you called know? Down East Maine. Down East Maine yeah, they just got their own lingo there. Yeah. So, good guy. Uh, next question. Oh, here comes Tuck. Hey, we just answered your question. We're live here, not live, but we just answered your question. By the way, so you'll have to listen to hear it though. Sorry. I always listen. Oh, there you go. Awesome. <laughs> um, uh, You're good. We good She's now? Okay. All right. Uh, Question number, I don't know, I don't know which number we're on here. We're just, we're just rifling through them, but um, here's an interesting one. An angler from Iowa message said he's going to be here in mid-June and looking for advice on how to make the most of his time here, targeting wild brook trout and small mountain streams. Um, if you were not from Maine, I would suggest getting a Maine uh, gazetteer, which is our basically our state atlas, and looking for mountain ranges that you're going to be around. And looking for little blue lines. We call that blue line here in Maine, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What's in Iowa? What's in Iowa? Yeah, for fish. Ooh. I, I would assume a lot of bass, panfish, and you know, they got a lot of those farm ponds and stuff, but... I have no idea. No, I don't. He's coming here. He's just coming here. I, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. 
I think he said to Farmington, which is great because you're right in the Western Mountains there. So go west, go north. Yeah, go west, go north from there. What's in Iowa? I don't. I mean, people live there. Are there musky? How close is that to the Great Lakes? Are not that far away. Yeah, I mean, I know they get steelhead. They get steelhead runs down in Indiana, which is close to there, right? I have no idea. Does Indiana bo- Iowa border Iowa? I believe it does, right? You tell me. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, yeah. I'm a math teacher, not a geography teacher. <laughs> you got all those I states. Nate knows. Come I, on, Nate. I have a great idea. How about if you email me, northwoodsfly at gmail.com. Let us know what you have for fish out there, and I'll give you some places to go fish. There we go. Boom. There you go. There's, there's your answer, sir. That's why he's better than us. You know, right there. That's awesome. He's got solutions like that, you know. So a, that's a fair trade. Right we want to know what's in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah, what's in Iowa? Yeah. Cool. Um, next question, kind of on board what we're doing tonight. Um, I don't think we need to go into too much detail with it because Matt Streeter just did a pretty good job. But somebody asked if we could remove three dams, kind of, uh, that was our number in Maine, highest positive impact, which ones would, which ones would you go after? What do you think, Greg? I got, I got the answer. Yeah, what do you got? Yeah, okay. So I take the lowest ones. Here, three, right? Yeah. I take the lowest ones on the Andro, the Penobscot, and the Kennebec. Okay. Just to give fish a fighting chance to get up and... Yep. I take the lowest ones closest to the sea. Yep. Um, you know, with the ones on the Kennebec, as you move for, further north, it gets a little tricky. But if you remove that lower one, then nothing really would change. Just a little bit more habitat would open up for the sea run fish. And same thing with the Penobscot, and same thing with the Andro. Yep. So, I would take the lowest, mo- lower most dams out of those three rivers, and those are my three dams that I would remove. And is that be for like Atlantic salmon or just owlwife shad, other um, other species? No, I think Atlantic salmon are doomed. So yeah, no, but it, our alewife population has shown. See, dams have been shown to be uh, one of the limiting factors for alewife. So and, and river herring, you know, and, and our sturgeon and uh, lamprey and eels, and so. You know, those fish, if you take the dams out, you're having basically an immediate impact. Um, the alewife don't like, they don't really leave the Gulf of Maine. They kind of stay in the Gulf of Maine. So yeah. Atlantic salmon go to Labrador Sea. The Labrador but would the alewives go up? Would they go up oh, more yeah. rivers yeah. then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If they had the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, if they had the opportunity. Cool. Atlantic salmon, see, they make such a far run to Labrador Sea. And the Labrador Sea, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but the trophic system is messed up. Yep. So Capelin, which the salmon used to go eat there, are no longer on top of the water. They're now way down in the water column, and salmon don't go there. So instead, salmon have supplemented the Capelin with squid. Squid are um, not as nutrient-rich as Capelin, and so Atlantic salmon aren't building up enough reserves to get back. That's the issue. And there's a, it's a really, really cool and, and really, really... Uh, complicated processes going over basically the ocean's heating up too fast yeah well if you remove those three dams though you just talked about you're at least helping enrich the gulf of maine yes. right which oh, is important oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. alewife big time bluebacks big time yep. sturgeon big time lamprey big time and lamprey are a huge one so yep if we could get huge runs of lamprey back so good for our local fisheries you know the bass populations the, the little brook trout streams stuff because when lamprey come up they die Mm-hmm. And that is like when they spawn, they die, and that that influx of nutrients yeah. is just—it's oh, so great for the stream. It's, it's the so good great. soil. Yeah, it just makes the whole stream come alive. And so, yep. if you remove that, you know, it's like detrimental. Yeah. You know, and then 
just can't have good, healthy populations like we used to. So, you know, cool. so that's my, that, those are my three deals. All right. Like. How about you, Nate? You're going to go Sebago, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, uh, <laughs> a little bit different. A little bit different than that. Uh, I'd actually take the first two dams off of the Androscoggin, um, really to open it up all the way to Lisbon Falls, um, just to really give them a lot more stretch in there to to spread around. And then you know, there is a long distance on the Kennebec itself to get upstream before you really get to the first dam. But I would definitely take out more on the Penobscot. You know, open that back up again because that's. To me, that's got a better quality of water that's flowing into it from farther up in northern Maine and has got the potential for, for better ground for fish. So, yeah, For sure it does. Without it, it's not even a question. All right. Uh, next question. Let's see. We have one for Greg here and one probably for me or Nate. You want your question, Greg, or you want? Sure. Lay it on me. All right. So uh, this is from our guy, Tony. Hey, Tony. Uh, he said, Greg recently posted a video on leeches. Is it a trial and error on formula? And how do you determine... So he's asking basically, how do you determine the weight or the length on the head to properly balance the leech? So he's talking about balanced leech patterns? Yep, 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 yep. I just posted a YouTube video. You can go check that out on how I make it, Tony, if you want to go look at that. Um, but it's it's... Trial and error, for sure. It's definitely trial and error. And after you do, you know, a dozen of them, you kind of get the hang of it. It's really dependent on the bead. How heavy is the bead? That will dictate how far out it should be. And it's, you know, it doesn't need to be, like, perfectly level. You know, you don't need to have a level out and, like, make sure that it's perfect. It just needs to be pretty close to lying flat. You know, because it's going to move around a little bit. It's not like leeches just sit completely still in the water, you know. So it's okay if it's, like, a little tilted a little bit. But, yeah, I would say it's trial and error for sure. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I found that helps is finding the thinnest gauge to put the bead on. So I used to use a nail. That's what I used to use, an actual nail, because it was heavy, you know. Like, it had good weight to it. Um, but then I found it, I had to use kind of a really small bead. And so I started using um, like a, like a 3x streamer or something, you know, something with a thinner gauge. Yeah. And that enabled me to put on a heavier bead, a bigger bead. So if I wanted that really honking bead on the front, you know, I had to use a thinner gauge. If I wanted to use a really really small one, I'd get the you know the biggest nail that would fit the smaller bead. That's what I that's what I would do. So um, trial and error for sure. Yeah. And like. You know, I'm always looking for stuff to to use for balance leeches. Like nails were great, you know. Um, paper clips were too bendy. The, anything that's like thin and really stiff, you know, it's like so I would. Does it have to have weight though? No, I, no, 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 no. I mean, no, no, no. Like you know, toothpick. You can use toothpick too if you can basically put something on the end, like a spot of glue, like a toothpick. I've tried that. It's really light, and it yeah, it just anyway. So okay. Sewing pins, mm. metal tipped sewing pins. Yeah probably the best that's that's what i use for all mine okay you yeah. buy them by the hundred at joanne fabric so nice yep and Joanne's i've never head. i've never tied a balance leech so i have nothing to say yeah. tony you want i'll give a tip to tony too because we like tony go to joanne fabrics mm. get your stuff <laughs> <laughs> because you go through there and just be like what could i use because it's cheap 
and you get a zillion of them and you just cannot replicate that stuff in a fly shop. So Joanne Fabrics is like a treasure trove. You just, I could spend all day in there filtering through stuff. So it's, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Do, I've never been enjoying fabrics. You do get a few funny looks when you come on. Oh, now, I'm though. sure. <laughs> that was what I was alluding you to. Do, you do, for sure. Um, another question, actually, from Tony, too. Uh, he said, to be a successful guide, how often do you check locations for fishing that you're going to target? I thought those were really... I, thought was, I, I think it's a very interesting question. So, so, like, how much scouting work do you do? You know, how much are you kind of trying to keep tabs in the area. And, and I, I think personally, um, just in my guiding experience, I don't love to fish a piece of water I haven't fished a lot because I feel like I should know that body of water, like the back of my hand and all different seasons, um, if I'm going to take people take people out there. Because um, if people are paying you money to take you out, I mean, you should know your water systems, your fish, everything that's going on. And you can only do that by spending a lot of time out there. Um, I would say a good thing that I did kind of early on was I would take a lot of people with me who weren't very experienced. And to me, it's not even the watershed so much as a matter of like, can you get, can you take people out who have never fly fished before? And can you, can you get them in a fish under even extreme conditions? So, um, my advice on that is to fish as much as you can throughout the season. You just learn so much from, you know, April is obviously different than August. So you learn a ton on those waters. Um, I don't particularly find that like, and you might disagree with me, Nate, but I don't find that like going out scouting and fishing the night before a trip or something is, is good. And in some ways I don't even like to do that. Cause I don't want to like interrupt the spots I'm going to come back to, you know what I mean? I don't know. I, I feel like just adding more pressure is not a good thing. So I would say get really comfortable with a piece of water or a couple of pieces of water, uh, for a few years before you feel like you're going to start taking people out. So what do you think, Nate? You can jump on that mic. Yeah, there you go. think about guiding and and you know the traditional main guide knew basically 40 or 50 square miles around their house and that was it and you can't replace you can't replace experience on a piece of water with with you know just going out and scouting it before you fish it so yeah put in put in your time on the water and i don't i don't disagree with you about scouting things we i do scout um, certain sections just to see what's going on with the fish to see if the river's changed at all but with the experience on the river I know where the fish are usually going to be at that time frame and exactly like you I won't do it the night before because no no, sense the on the before no. I've done that before and I don't feel good it's, it's bad mojo I think yeah man I think it's bad because I agree you know the piece of water and you can hook the fish yep. and what if that's the one or two trophy-sized fish that you're going to get out of that piece the next Sure. And, I can, and I'll can, be very brutally honest with you. Like, early on in my fishing days, if there was a, you know, a piece of water that I wanted to, um, that I hadn't really fished a lot of, and I wanted to kind of scout it a little extra, but kind of bring some clients out, yeah. I would often say to people, hey, listen, I'm going to try this new spot. Um, I've been on it, you know, once or twice, but um, I've never brought anybody down before. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you... I'll give you two days for the price of one, you know, just kind of work a deal with people and say, Hey, listen, you know, you know, pay me for one day. And then for the other day, let's just go out and, you know, um, admittedly, I don't know it very well, but we can, you know, you guys can help me kind of be Guinea pigs. And, yeah. and I, I think I've said this to you before too, you know, that's how I got into small bass fishing. Yeah. Was I diehard trout guide and, and guiding on the Androscoggin and the water temperatures got up there and we needed to find something else to do. And 
we explored the piece of water for smallmouth that we had, and sure enough, two weeks later, we got somebody who said, hey, we want to go smallmouth bass fishing, and the greatest thing in the world could have happened to me, because they said, all you got to do is row the boat, we'll show you everything else. And, awesome. and I was honest, you know, I said to him, I'm not a smallmouth bass fisherman, I've always been a trout guy, and that day turned me around, yeah. you know, and it was fortunate enough that I had good clients, and, and they knew what they were doing out there on the water. For sure, yeah. I think just having confidence in where you're going to go is the number one thing that you should have, though. 100%. Yeah, because you're like, you got to be like, hey, I can catch, you know, I could catch a fish here maybe with my eyes closed. Like, you might need to literally, because sometimes you have people that just can't, you know, cast, and they don't follow your instruction very well, and and maybe you're just not linking up well that person or whatever, but, I mean... I've had people catch fish when extreme conditions are bad, and it's because I was on the water a lot when they're extreme conditions and tried to yeah. learn it well. You know, high water, low water, whatever. You get to know at a different water level where mm-hmm. those fish are going to sit behind a given piece of structure. Or yep. And you get your favorites, and you keep those in your memory bank. Yep. I think it's hard in Maine, too, though, because Maine is a spot where there's so much temperamental fishing. Like, this body of water fish is good for, like, two or three weeks, and then this one is, like, you know, good for two or three weeks, and, like, you can kind of guide over those spots, but I don't like to guide on stuff that's only good for like two weeks because I just feel like I'm inviting people to come back more. And usually those places get pretty busy because people know about them and I don't love doing that. So I like to fish bodies of water or for types of fish that I know are just going to be there, you know, for, for long haul. And and so there's, there's an advantage right there in itself of fishing, you know, smallmouth or warm water. Yeah. I mean, all season, you know, the only thing you have to change up is your tactics about how you're going to go at them depending on, you know, water temperature, water level, and, and really somewhat time of the year. Yeah, absolutely. No. Well, I hope that answers the, the guide question. We'll do one more. There's one more guide question, so I'll just stay on that. Um, Greg's kind of taking a breather here. So uh, somebody said, I'm thinking about pulling the trigger on guiding, which I think anybody who's guided has obviously thought about that, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, they said, I have bad test anxiety. How hard is it? And I know that a couple of times we've talked about, I know I've talked about the guide test on here before. Um, they've changed it yeah. recently too, from what I've heard. Well, so here's the problem for me is mine's 20 years old now. So my test is different than what Aaron took. Yeah. And what, you know, Greg would go take if Greg decides to do it. So, yep. you know, I have test anxiety as well. Mm. Um, you know, there are some really good schools out there that can basically tell you everything you need to know yeah. about passing the tests. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I will warn you about with that, though, is um, they can't replace knowledge and experience. Right. So if, if you're thinking seriously about doing this, make sure that, you know, you have the confidence in yourself, in your knowledge, and your experience to be able to handle yourself with customers. Yeah. Because... Honestly, if you relax, anybody can pass a book test. Sure. Right. Well, passing a test is a lot different than leading, you know, successful years of guided trips and stuff. And you got to know your waters. You got to be able to work with people of all different attitudes and be very patient. On a daily basis. Daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to, you know, you need to understand what, you know, what safety look like where I'm going and stuff. So a lot of that stuff isn't really asked or thought of when you're taking the test. No, right. and, and honestly, you know, to whoever whom asked this question, you know, I would be more nervous, I think, about uh, your day-to-day operations as a guide than I would be about taking the test. Yeah. 
honestly. Because you can take the test as many times as you want. You can take the test as many times yeah. as you want, but you yep. can't replace clients if you, if you mess up on Right. Experience. And I, I do know that there's, you know, there's three, uh, three sections, kind of two. There's verbal and written. Um, but there's written... Then there's a verbal part where they ask you a catastrophic event or... Uh, yeah, which for me back then it was a lost person scenario. Lost person scenario, sure. They yeah. still do that too, I believe. And then uh, and then they have you um, do a map and compass map part. Compass. Yeah, which uh, I failed the map and compass the first time around, admittedly. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, everywhere I go, I don't. I mean, I know where I'm at. But, right. And I, <laughs> I do definitely... The, the cool thing about that, though, is that I didn't spend a lot of time doing map and compass stuff before like before i became a guide and because of the test it taught me a lot of things that i now use actually when i'm hunting which is when i really need it because i get way the hell out there sometimes and need to get back so i know they change up the guides test a lot particularly the oral board section of it not so much the written side of it sure 100 100 multiple choice questions you're gonna get a 70 yeah yeah a lot of boating questions for people who are wondering too the oral board you know is really dependent on who you get the sitting in on Sure. So, uh, Wiggy Robinson, mm. got the annual award in his name. Yep. He was my, my tester on my oral board. Nice. And it was, it was a pretty powerful moment. Like, I'm fourth generation, and my dad was there for the day that I passed my, my oral board to them. So, yep. I didn't know about it. Wiggy came out and said to my dad, well, he's going to make a hell of a good guy. Nice. Right? So, Very cool. You know, I, don't, don't be nervous about it. And, you know, if you are nervous about it, it, it just... Look into one of those schools. There's yeah. a lot of good schools out there. And, yep. and they can help you with the test part, but but like Nate said, be really ready for the real part yes. when you're you got people out there, you know, somebody busts an ankle or something and you're two miles from a truck or something. I mean, have a plan. Yes. You know? Yeah. Come to think of it, I gotta think of some plans for some spots I'm going <laughs> this year. Um uh all right. Greg, you wanna jump back in? Oh. What time are you what time are you going? Greg's doing a talk, so we don't know what time. It's it's uh we're going dependent on the sun, I guess, because he needs some good lighting for his presentation. So, so they say. Yeah. Um, here's a kind of a funny, probably quick answer question. What kind of truck is your fish rig? <laughs> Everyone should answer the same, right? I mean, pretty much everybody has a Toyota except Tacoma. For, except for... Nate's got the big dog truck, yeah, but... Big dog guy, you know. I, I would say... The, what's the ideal okay, wait, wait, rig, wait. though? What about that question? Ideal rig? Yeah, like what would you have if you could have like what is it? GMC Sierra twenty five hundred, I guess. So you want a big you want a big old truck? I like that. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. How about a, oh a Raptor? Maybe I'd go with a Raptor for sure. That'd be that'd be decent. I would like to have I would like to have a Tundra with the cap on it. And tundra with the cap. On yeah, I mean it's a bigger okay, truck, okay, you know. Okay, I'm, I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge. Uh, I used to have a Chevy for years, and Ford trucks are very popular in Maine. And Dodge trucks are also popular, but you drive around and you look at trucks, and this isn't really a fishing part here, but Toyotas have the least amount of rust on them, I find. And rust, for me, has always been what keeps a old truck uh, off the road. So yeah. I, I drove that's important to me. I drove Dodge for a long time, and, uh, and you know, it, it was great. It still ran fine, um, Dodge Dakota, but it, it rust, I mean, you yeah. can see literally right through it. But a fish rig, though, I would like to have something I could sleep in in the back, ideally, with a, some screen sliders on it, right? Sure. And definitely get the, you know, Riversmith-type rod rack on the top. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, something massive. But I can't have a car. I can't, uh, I can't do a little SUV or something. I can't do it. <laughs> maybe, 
you know, once it, once you switch to a truck, because I didn't drive a truck growing up, but when I got a truck, I was like, wow, I'm yeah. just a truck person forever now. Yes. I mean, it, I believe that everyone would be a truck person if they drove a truck. Sure. It's so easy to just toss something in the back. Yeah. Like, so easy. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's great. It, it, you know, I agree. So a truck. I agree. Can you read the, read the question one more time? He, he just said, what, uh, what kind of truck is your fish rig? Now. Just simple. It almost made me think like my fly rod setup. What kind of truck is that? That's what it, that's what oh. it makes me think. But I, I would I would agree that um, yeah, just something big. I guess I, I would want a GMC Sierra twenty five hundred with yeah. a cab on the back. Yep. Yeah. Well, when you go to real remote places, you want something that's yeah, big, spacious. Yeah. Some big tires on it. Oh, here we go. There's a little Ram fifteen hundred. Huh? There's a fish rig for you. There's a fish rig. Perfect. All right. Next question. We're almost we're almost done here. We're just gonna whip through a few more. Uh, here's a good one, Nate. We'll jump. We'll start with you here. Is there any kind of fish species you wish Maine had? It's your wish list fish. A- anything, anything out there. Uh, golden Dorado. I wish we had. I wish we had a fishery of Golden Dorado. Where are those found? Uh, like Amazon. Jungle. More yeah. jungle. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Greg. Taman, not even close. Taman, for sure. Taman or a trout, right? Yeah. yeah. But they're like in Russia. Yeah, Mongolia, Russia. Okay. Biggest trout in the world. Like you know, a seventy-incher is they're out there. Yep. You know, sixty-something inches are out there. They catch them every year. Yep. And they have tails. Like you can look up tails of Taman, and they have tails of old, um, like old settlers, like old Mongolian settlers using groundhogs as bait. Jesus. <laughs> It's insane. You know, those like ancient, those are like, you know, yeah. 1100. But they are huge fish, yeah, so. so. you know, you didn't ground for you. So. Can you uh, guess mine? Let's see here. Something soft. I've never fished for it. I've wanted to, though. Uh, something obvious, I feel like. You're, you're like, you know, like if I asked you what kind of dog would you name, say, a golden retriever, you know? Like, you just. Nah. Like, uh, steelhead, I, I would think you would say. No, I'm not steelhead. Not sealhead, but I know a lot of people wish we did have sealhead here in Maine. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be cool. Um, it's easy. You get one guess, Nate. What's your guess? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking for a goldfish. A goldfish. There we go. No, I would He's love... Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a huge salt guy yet. I will be someday. Sure. Yeah. I should. I live in Saco. Yeah. I'm right here. Yes. Um, I would love to fish for tarpon in Maine. I think oh, it'd be... Yeah, re- yeah. I think oh, it'd be... Re- oh. It would be ridiculous. That would be yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be tarp, pretty cool. Yeah. Those are all free great. Boy, can you imagine tarpon drop? None of them are small. So. No, no, I mean, you know, no, no, no. Um, yeah, boy, yeah, Golden Dorado, tarpon, taman are, imagine, imagine yep. if you could have all three of those within driving distance of each other, you know, like a day, day trip. <laughs> what a day that would be. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, let's get back to reality here. Um, so... Here's a good question from a new fly fisher. Uh, sometimes my fly gets stuck at the bottom of the river. Any advice on how to avoid that? Or maybe some tips on, they didn't ask this, but maybe some tips on how to get unstuck. Yeah, so I'm assuming that they're using nymphs. I'm assuming they're talking about nymphs. Is that, is that what we're all in agreement here? Or do we want yes, to- I have had a dry fly hang up on the bottom of the river once, but that was because a... Fish took it, went down underneath a log, sure, and sure, snagged sure, me there. Sure, sure. So, but that doesn't happen. For the 
for this argument, I guess, we'll, or for this discussion, we'll, we'll, we'll assume they're talking about nymphs. Yep. Uh, I would say, uh, you're, if you're using a strike indicator, you know, put it lower, down. Yeah, I mean, a lot of trial and error, right? Yeah. Like, how do you avoid getting hung up a lot? Like, if you get hung up once, you just all of a sudden... If you get hung up, you know what I mean? Like, if you get hung up, then... Use less weight, yeah, or move your indicator, move your indicator down a little. Oh well, there's there's a lot of trial and error though. Yeah, yeah, just you know, use a lighter rig, stop dredging the bottom. Yeah, you don't need to dredge the bottom. No, the fish aren't hanging right on the bottom. Feel like they want to be like, and I need to be on bottom, and it's like the only time you might want to be on bottom is like April. True. True. Other than that, even in April, fish still come up. Yeah. Still move in the water column. Right. So. What I would say is use use less weight if you're using a strike indicator, lower it down a little bit, you know, yeah. just so that you're not as deep. And um, try, you know, try switching flies more, you know, than 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 trying to get deeper. Right. The answer is not getting deeper. That's not the answer. No. The answer is finding the right zone within the water column. You know, so like most trout, you know, how how deep is the water where most trout are? Four feet. Three or four feet. Yeah. Four yeah. feet. You know. Yeah. Right. So you're just if your fly is two feet down. Two and a half feet, you know, what's the difference between that and three feet at the bottom? Like, there's not much, right? The right. trout are going to see it. They're going to see it. They don't need to move far to get it. So, yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not catfish. Like, they're not no, no. bottom and feeders. I mean, I would they're say not if you don't right there on the bottom. Feeder, the best way to get a fly unstuck, there's like a bit, bunch of different ways, I suppose. But one way is if you're using a streamer or something, you can just stick your rod, pull the line in all the way to the fly. Mm. You know what I mean? Yep. And kind of push past it. So sure. Flies at your last eye, the tip of your rod, and you just push past it. Yep. That works like every time. In a river, you want to pull back upstream too, yep. because your flies came from upstream. So you, yep. you. But if you keep setting downstream, you're just don't, gonna. Don't be afraid to walk fifty feet upstream. I've done if it. You, if you really want the fly, like if you have, you know, a double beaded stone fly that costs you six bucks, you know, mm-hmm. go go walk the fifty feet upstream. And That's a good point. Up, you know, pop it up. It's ha- like who hasn't done that? Who hasn't gone a very far distance to get up? You know, maybe oh. it's not now. Like I, I probably wouldn't do that now, but maybe. No, oh, I would. Or you can. Uh, My flies back, you man. Can price at tungsten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Or you can put a little flag next to the riverbank, bring some flagging, <laughs> and come back when it's really low. There you go. So, I okay. Wait, I have done that with a stick though. I had a stick, and there was. It had to have been 200 flies on it. Yeah. Like, just loaded. And I hung a little flag back. I've never been back. I haven't gone back for it. But there's a... <laughs> if you see a random piece of flagging on a river, there might be a stick with about 200 flies on it, 10 feet out front of it. All right. And I just needed the water to be, like, a foot lower, and I could have got it, you know? So, yeah, there's something else you can do. Greg's promising you a free dozen flies if you can find his... Uh, yeah, his flag like, stick uh, somewhere in his you, in his flies bag. Fly box and line and I'll give you whatever you want. <laughs> All right. There's like thousand dollars worth of flies on it. It's just loaded, you know. There's loaded. Your, there's your where's Waldo, folks. So where's go find it. I won't tell you where it is, but if you do yeah. find it, you know that'd be great. Awesome. Um, this is another question that uh, was an interesting one that that somebody said. So they said, when I see a hatch but no rising fish, do I Fish dries, or should I stay with nymphs? I love this question. Well, the stay with nymphs part to me was assuming that. I mean, I'm not laughing. 
I'm, I'm not laughing either. But if the fish are rising, I'm gonna stay with. I'm gonna stay with dries. I mean, I'm assuming I was fishing dries if they were rising. But honestly, I've caught fish though on nymphs quite a bit when fish are rising, and I can't get them to get something. So it's not a, it's not a bad question. You know, that's that's again. I, like you ever just switch up like dries like multiple times you just can't get them to commit yeah sure you know i um we've all like, been there if you see fish rising and you can't see the fly then it's probably a midge something so small something so all right small. so just go smaller something go smaller so small. go smaller so it's like you know catching a catching a fish on a size 22 midge like a uh, dry fly is so hard like, it's hard it's so so, yeah, I usually trail it behind something I can see because you can't see it even a lot of times. If you've ever gone, there's a great spot. I wish I could say it, but I can't. There's a great spot to go, and you can, on a really clear day, you can see fish um, feeding, mm-hmm. like clearly. And I've sat there for a long time and just watched the fish feed. And even when there's a crazy hatch, you can still see the fish feeding on the bottom nonstop. Exactly. So... When a hatch, when like a crazy hatch is going on, fish are still feeding on the bottom. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they're all coming up no. to feed up top, and a lot of them actually don't. I'll say so. nymphs, nymphs always work. Yep. Dry flies yeah. only work some of the time. Yeah. 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 So yeah. if you switch up ten dry flies, maybe you should switch up and go deeper and go small. Yeah. Go small with your dries. That's yeah. always a good place to start. Yeah. For sure. Usually. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I yeah. think I think that was a good answer to that question. So funny though. I mean, but here's the thing: when I see one. One splash. I'm going instant dries. Instant dries. Yeah. Instant dries. Yeah. No question about it. Yep. Just <laughs> but, no question. But we've all been there where we do that and then we don't hook up. Oh, and you're you like, and, and you've gone through a bunch of flies and you're like, you almost never hook up. That, that, that's, but I, I just can't help it. Nymphing, nymphing's just that effective though. Sure. It's crazy. Right. Right. But how many fish have you caught on a nymph? Oh my God. Zillion, yeah. Right? Yeah. The dry is just so much better. You know, so I would almost, I'd almost rather try and not catch anything on a dry than catch one fish on a nymph. You know, right. just because I just love seeing the fish come up and take it so much more. Yeah, and I like to dry fly fish a lot once, like, the warmer weather comes around, too, because I, I do feel like it's more of a challenge. Like, you can catch more fish on nymphs. There's no doubt about that. We've yeah. all been there. Yeah. But I like the challenge of trying to make them commit and come up. Like, can you can you fool them into feeding? You know, that's what I... I like doing that, and uh, I've actually found that I caught a lot more fish that way just by oh. fishing dries more. Yeah, so. I mean, it's, and I don't know, there's something about it. It's kind of like stalking a deer for hunting rather than just sitting there. There's something about it that makes it, it's a little more challenging, yep. and, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's harder. It's definitely harder. So I just enjoy that challenge more. All right, while we're on nymphing, we'll go to the next question. And Nate, we'll have you jump in here on this one. So what's the biggest difference... This is, again, kind of a newbie question. <laughs> give, me, give me that look. Uh, what's the biggest difference between nymphing and euro-nymphing? Can you explain that to folks who are... One is fly fishing, one is not. Oh, well, that's Greg's, that's Greg's <laughs> wise-ass answer right there. Um, what's the overall... What are the, big, what are the biggest differences between just nymphing and euro-nymphing? Step on up here. So... It depends on the form of nymphing what you're talking about. So if you're, are you nymphing under an indicator? Are you nymphing under like a dry dropper rig? It sounds like people are asking indicator versus not yeah. indicator. Yeah. So with an indicator, the, the angle of which your tippet material and your flies hangs below that indicator is far different than it would be under just a straight tight line euro nymphing 
style setup. Um, the other piece about it, and Greg touched on this before, was you know with an indicator, you don't oftentimes feel the bottom, so you can get your flies hung up easier. Whereas where the Euro setup, you can actually feel that point fly bouncing across the bottom in there, and you can adjust your drift through there as needed for different rocks and objects. And you know, I would say probably 75% of my fish takes are on my second fly or my third fly in the rig, not on that bottom fly anyway. It's just there for anchoring purposes. Um, so basically, the difference is, you know, you get a lot better feel for fish in the bottom with a urine-anthing setup than you do with uh, a strike indicator setup. Mm. And, you know, sometimes with a strike indicator setup, it takes a long time for that reaction from the fish take on the fly to be translated to that indicator. And mm. you, you probably miss more fish fishing that way than you do if you just switch over to urine-anthing. Yeah, and your own thing's just I'm I've been doing the last couple of years now and just kinda not tradition I'm not doing like the twenty foot leader way though. I've been a little shorter than that. But more so just kinda nymphing traditionally but without an indicator and just trying to go based off feel. Yeah. And I mean you definitely need a rod that's light enough because the rod does play a big part, I believe in that. And that's why they do have your own nymphing rod. So um to me, it's, it's, it was cool. It's been cool just to kind of feel for a fish, though. It's a little different than just kind of watching an indicator. Yeah, and the, the transfer of that energy is really done not through having fly line out of the tip of the rod. So that's hence the comment about, you know, it's not really fly fishing because you're not propelling those flies with a fly line, you know. And you, you can, with some of more of those straight running lines, you can get a feel of your flies going across the bottom with some of that line out of the tip, but... It's mostly based on having a leader as long as your rod and then tippet material off of that so that you can get the feel for those flies going through. Sure. So, sure. And it's hard. It's hard. If you try and cast a 20-foot Euronymph setup the first time, you're, you're going to have all kinds of issues. So yeah. no, no problem in starting smaller and building your way up. And I don't always fish a 20-footer either. No. It's not always, not always needed. So. No. You want to jump in on that one, or you want to go to those? No, no, All no, right. no, 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 Nate, Nate covered it there. Yeah, it's pretty good. I don't, I don't euro nymph, you know, I tried it and stuff, but um, I just, I don't do it, because, you know, I, I don't know, I just don't do it. I'm you a got, indicator guy, and, you know, I do okay. You do okay. <laughs> <laughs> you do okay, yeah, yeah. You know, I do Feel okay. bad for the bastard coming in after you. <laughs> uh... All right, we're gonna go with the last question here because we got some folks around, and we want to. We're gonna kind of go mingle and do the do the show here a little bit. And uh, thank you again, folks, for listening. Um, yeah, thank you for the questions, guys. Yeah, great questions. We didn't get to all of them, um, but I'll save them for next time because yeah, we'll sure. most likely do a mail day question can I be honest, again. Can I be honest yeah, go ahead. For, them, for the listeners, yeah. You need to really step your question game up. Some of them were pretty poor, um, and uh, you know, it's just wasting buttons. Like, why <laughs> even bother? <laughs> Greg's a busy guy. Why do you even bother asking me? You know, I got to look at it, you know, because it comes up as a thing. And I yeah. Look at it. All right. All right. <sighs> Greg wants some more integrity in the system here, I folks. Want some more so. integrity in the system, and I want more thorough questions, and I want yep. better questions. Well, you can send the silly that's questions a, to me then. I'm not, I'm not such a stickler as Greg. Well, so. that's a call to action. You know, <laughs> I'm asking more out of our listeners. Here we are, selling our souls on a Thursday night. Really, sure. really difficult conditions over here. Yep. Trying to give some entertainment. <laughs> it's true we're shoved in the corner over here in a box <laughs> overlooking this beautiful bay well that part's really nice yeah and uh you know can we get some high quality questions okay is that so much to ask fair enough fair enough <laughs> uh we're gonna go to the last question because i think 
the last question is interesting, and it's it's it can be a short answer one. Um, but there's reports of early season stripers already. I mean, this is pretty early for you know first week of May, and people have been catching them in Taco Bay, Casco Bay. Um, so last question, very simply, what's your favorite striper fly? And we're gonna end it on that. Give me a moment. Okay. Bunker fly. Bunker fly. Colors. God, you know. Are they tan? I don't. Even, I don't. I don't really know. A no. hollow fly. Okay. A hollow fly of any size. Yep. Deer hair is king. In, in, it's in a nice cheap fly. answer for people that go fish the forty dollar hollow flies. Okay. Well, <laughs> you can get. Come on. You can get. You know. But yeah, <laughs> hollow flies rule. They rule. They're yeah. my favorite. They're my favorite to throw, and they're really fun to tie, even though they take a really, really long. Um, but you can, you know, Pollock staple. You know, there's a lot of Pollock on the coast, and you can yep. go catch Harbor Pollock if you have like a little clouser, like a size like two clouser, like a bright yellow one or something. You can catch a bunch of Pollock and see. Um, what they look like, and they're they're really cool. They have some brown, and they're really cool. You can make a hollow fly into anything that we have. You can make it into an eel if you wanted to. You could make it into an alewife. You could make it into a shad. You can make it into anything. You can make it into a pollock. You know, you can make it into a baby striped bass if you want. Like you can make it into anything. And so, not only that, but it pushes so much water. Yeah. And strikers are lateral line hunters. You know. So they're waiting to feel the movement. They're not looking for it. They're feeling for it. They feel it. They go and find it. Yeah. You know? So you want something that can push water. And with all, you know, with all the major predatory fish, musky, pike, bass even, you know, they're lateral line hunters. They're waiting for that water to be pushed. And those big bulky flies seem to just do much better. So... Cool. I would say a hollow fly, and yes, they are like eighty thousand dollars, but you know, <laughs> they're and they're also a pain to tie for sure. But you know, it's they're, they're super cool. And it's got to be rewarding though, tying one and then catching a any anyone on it, but a good size. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, cool. they're great. Um, I don't know about rewarding. It's exhausting tying like three of them in a row. For sure. Exhausting. Yeah, I will. <laughs> you know, but yeah. uh, but they are they are great, and they push a lot of water. Same thing with like you know. You have like bulkheads, you can have these bulkheads or reverse bulkheads or, you know, anything like, anything similar to that sort of, that style, that reverse hollow fly style it is my favorite. Sounds good. Yeah. What's yours? What's mine? Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm like, I've caught like two stripers on the fly. Nice. I was, I, I, can I, you I were there for the first one. Yes, yes yeah, he did. It was decent, for sure. Pop the striper cherry. It was decent, yeah, yeah for sure. It was a micro. Pop most most trout I catch are bigger than it. Uh, that's true. It was small. It was yep. small. You've got to start somewhere, though. You do, yeah. I'll never forget the look on your face. Just a funny, funny... I actually, I caught a... Uh, I caught a something that day that wasn't a striper that was bigger than the striper. I know. What did I catch? You caught a pogey. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Most people don't catch pogies on the fly. <laughs> the pogey was bigger than... Yeah. The striper, so that was, yep. that was interesting. But yep. yeah, what a special day. The sun was setting. Didn't need two hands for that fish, that's for sure. <laughs> Didn't even barely need barely, two fingers. Yeah, barely needed one. Yeah. Uh, so my favorite striper fly is the, the next fly that I'll fish. That's a, that's a neat answer for you. What do you got, Nate? Finish this off. I know you just kind of got into some striper fishing last year again. and 
What's your favorite? Or what's your favorite to tie? Let's at least go there. Hop on. Uh, actually, my favorite to fish, I started last year using a complete synthetic brush from a friend of mine. Um, and Brian Russell will like this because it's in black, but it's got a lot of purple in it as well. Um, but it's it basically makes a bulkhead or a reverse bulkhead shaped fly out of a simple brush. The the problem with them is you got to carry a comb with you because being all synthetic, the stuff starts to get tangled up after a while. So you got to be able to to comb them out. But uh, to me, they're they're just super durable. And and again, my very first day striper fishing last year was was pretty damn good for me. So. Uh, was with that fly and big shout out to Sean Baggett out there. Thanks, Sean, for taking me. Nice. That's what I got. All right. All right, everybody. Well, listen, uh, we're gonna go. We're gonna go mingle here and I'm go to the crowd. Oh, please plug the summer showcase. Thank you so much. Yeah, go ahead. The, um... <laughs> that was a big. That was a big part of this. Yeah. They, um, so myself and Maine Fly Company are putting on the uh, Maine Fly Fishing Summer Showcase on July tenth. That's going to be down at Thompson's Point in uh, Thompson's Beach, excuse me, in Brunswick, and uh, you know there's going to be an expo from 10 to 4. There's a striper tournament, so if you want to get in on that, there's going to be some prizes from all kinds of companies: Thomas Thomas, Main Flyco, myself, um, a couple other companies are, are pitching in. So there's plenty of uh, of opportunities to win some stuff in that in that tournament, and then there's going to be an after party at Trinken Brewery right in Brunswick there. Um, all of the proceeds are going to Project Healing Waters, which if you don't know, they kind of help disabled veterans or veterans that are having a hard time and uh, they get them sort of that camaraderie back or get them into fly fishing if they've lost it or just, you know, a place that they can go and feel comfortable. And so we've had the opportunity to talk to a few of them and it's been, it's, it's really been cool to see what the organization is doing for real people. You know, yeah. these people have actual problems. They've done things that I am not anywhere near brave enough to do and they have come back and they need help and they're providing that help and it's you know that's real 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 you know success stories there it's just it's tremendous so all the proceeds are going towards that it's a great cause um and uh yeah so you can go on my website mainflyguys.com there's an events tab right in the top and uh, you can click that event tab and you can find out all about it and you uh it's four dollars to go that's just the park entry fee where it is, and uh, and and yeah, that that's it. You know, so you can find out more information about it on my uh, events tab on mainflyguys.com, and uh, and yeah. So I hope to see everyone there. I hope to see everyone that's here show up, and uh, yeah, it's gonna be a fun time. Yeah, it's I'm excited. Shaping up to be. Yeah, it's just fun to have these events that could turn into annual things going on around here. And um, all right, well, until next time, thanks again, everybody, for listening.